Thank you for listening to the following sermon from Pine Grove Community Church in Rylander, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit us at pinegrove-wi.com. We hope you enjoy the sermon. If you turn with me to Galatians chapter 4, please. We are in verses 21 to 31 of Galatians chapter 4. This is a, a section, really in all of Scripture, particularly in Galatians, that is difficult. You might remember that Peter, in the book of Second Peter at the end, uh, said that Paul writes of things that are hard to understand. And he said, some who are ignorant, unstable, twist to their own destruction... I would assume he had in mind something like this. Uh, it's, under, it's hard to understand because he takes this instance of Abraham having the promise to have a son and then Sarah, his wife, who's barren and too aged to have a child, kind of taking matters into her own hands and giving her slave, Hagar, to her husband to try to have a child through the slave, which would have been by law hers. But then he doesn't use it in a straightforward manner, but as an allegory. So it's difficult. All that to say, you're going to have to pay attention. You're going to have to engage right now. You're, you're going to have to pay attention. Because the lesson given here is that we are not children of the slave, but of the free. It gets to the essence of what God has done for you in Christ and so who we are by God's promise, not by your efforts. So it's vital. Now, why would Paul give us this difficulty? Partly, do realize we're at the end of a section here. We're at the end of Paul's major teaching part in Galatians where he's already spent two and a half chapters explaining justification by faith. So this isn't the only thing he's told you. He said it very plainly. He's given you other examples. He's given you lots of other scripture. This is given at the end of it to drive it home. It, it snaps you awake because he spent two and a half chapters teaching it. Now he's going to give you this allegory that where did this come from and what is this about to really draw you in and to fix it in your mind. But it's good to have some hard work, isn't it? It's good to have to put in some sweat to have to really pour over Scripture to to help you understand it. So, if you come to a hard problem in your marriage or at your workplace or maybe a mechanical issue that you don't want to have to pay somebody a couple grand to fix, you're going to figure it out for yourself, you'd put in the time, right? But how often in Scripture do we come to those difficult passages and we just quickly go right over them because we don't want to put in the time? So don't do that here. Put in the time. It'll be worth it. And so let's uh, listen carefully, if you would. Galatians four twenty-one to 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave woman, but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free 
woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Let's ask God's help. Father, the earth is full of evidence, particularly at this time of year, of your great, eternal, and unbreakable saving love. And so please teach us your word. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So Abraham is, throughout the entire Bible, the example of justification. He is brought up everywhere, pointed back to as uh, how to respond to God's promise of salvation. And so if you don't know Abraham, you're going to be somewhat in difficulty. So let's just take a moment here. Abraham we first meet at the end of Genesis 11, at the end of a section of genealogy giving he begot him, begot him, begot him, begot him, and then you have Sarah and Abraham, and then you have chapters after that that just focus on Abraham. So Abraham is in the line of the promise uh, of God to Adam and Eve to send a Savior. He is continuing that line from Adam and Eve through Seth, and Abraham then becomes a major figure. So everybody sung, Father Abraham had many sons, right? So this is him. Anybody that God chose him, Abraham was a nobody. And yet God determined in his eternal plan to make Abraham the forefather of all who have faith in God's saving promise. So, the promise to Abraham was carrying on of the promise to Eve that he would have a son through whom he would bless all nations. Now, if you know anything about the entire biblical truth, one of the glorious realities is that God carries forward his promise just by having children, but often he gives children in a most remarkable way. Totally unexpected, and that's true in Abraham's case, right? Kids, what do you know about Sarah? The first thing told about Sarah in Genesis 11, do you know what it is? She's barren. In Genesis 11.30, that's the first thing. Wouldn't that be nice to be introduced? Hi, this is my wife Sarah and she's barren. Not only that, we're told that she is way past childbearing age. So she wasn't able to bear children, even if she were, she's decades past that time of her life. 
And so it looks like God's promise of a son is impossible. But of course, on this end of history, we rejoice in this. The, the way that the narrative reads about Sarah, it's as if the birth of the son that shall have Isaac is even without Abraham at all. Just like Mary. So, so, he's getting you ready for his son to come, isn't he? But let's just focus on Sarah now. So when God made that promise and when God fulfilled it, there were lots of years in between there. It wasn't as if God gave the promise and the next morning Sarah felt the child in her womb. It was years and years and years later. And how many of you enjoy waiting? It's difficult. And particularly for a woman who's barren and for a woman who has promised a child. And so partway through, Sarah being frustrated, angry, demanding, impatient, decided that she would... Maybe she thought that God was going to fulfill it not by some miraculous way, but she had to do something. Maybe she thought, oh, maybe God wants me to do this. And maybe she even said, like some of you do, I think God is leading me to do this. Pastorally, whenever I hear that, like alarm bells start going off in my head. Because typically what people are doing is convincing themselves to do something that they probably shouldn't do by pawning it off on God so that they don't have to take any responsibility. Anyways, Sarah has the idea that Abraham should sleep with her servant, her slave, Hagar. Pretty awful, isn't it? Isn't it good that none of us ever sin like that? And so we deserve God's salvation. And I'm glad I'm not like Sarah. Abraham was all for it, it appears. And so the way that it would work, though, is because Hagar was a slave, the child would be counted as Sarah's. And this would fulfill God's promise. So they had a son through Hagar, whose name was Ishmael. But Ishmael isn't the promised son. Ishmael is a son born according to the flesh. Ishmael is a son born according to human working and human ingenuity, not according to God's promise. All right, so another thing in the Bible that you'll constantly see is not only miraculous births, but two sons. One who seems to be the obvious choice and one who isn't, and God almost always picks the one who isn't obvious, right? Where else do you see that? Yeah, David, even Cain and Abel, over and over and over again, God is proving to us that it's by His sovereign grace and not by our own ingenuity or human ways of thinking. It's up to God. Who saves? God. And so that's the background. Abraham's married to Sarah. God promises Sarah a son. She's barren. She's decades too old to bear children. Sarah and Abraham decide to do it in their own way, in their own ingenuity, according to the flesh, through Sarah's slave. Ishmael is born, but he isn't the promise line. Instead, when Sarah's just over 90 years old, Abraham is just over 
100 years old, Abraham and Sarah do what married couples do, and Sarah is given a child named Isaac, the son of promise. So do you know that story? I use the word story, and it makes you think that it's fiction. It isn't. This really happened. Do you know those details? Are you familiar with this way that God worked to bring his own son into the world? This is scripture. And so just take care to read your Bible and to know it. One of the things that might deflate you is that maybe you're 25 or maybe you're 55 or maybe you're 75 and you feel like you've wasted a lot of years where you could have been learning the Bible and you look at somebody who's much more knowledge of the Bible of you and you despair that you'll never get there. Well, yeah, you won't if you don't begin now. God redeems the years the locusts have eaten. And so just start now. Go at it. Quit excusing yourself. Quit prioritizing other things. Make this the priority. Confess it to God. Ask for His help. Get other people to get you some accountability. But just keep going. And then when you screw it up, just start again. And just keep doing it. Because the people who know the Bible better than you, that's all they did. That's all. There's no magic solution here. There's sweat equity and a little blood. and Put in the time. You'll get there. Okay, now Paul says that that True reality, he says in verse 24, may be interpreted allegorically. Now, th- this isn't anything that's new to you or odd to you, allegory, is it? You have all read like The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, kind of fantasy stuff. That's a big deal in our day. And typically those stories are written to tell a greater story, a deeper truth. Now, they're enjoyable stories in themselves, and so just the story itself, the narrative is engaging, but there's deeper lessons, hidden meanings that are very enjoyable. In fact, in some great details, they'll put in things that really take some time. You see this in movies sometimes. There's little embedded things, and you've got to go Google it and find all of these hidden things that are set there that are very meaningful to the director, to the actor, or whatever. That's kind of allegory. So in our Sunday school class, Terry is teaching us through Pilgrim's Progress. It's an allegory. The, the main character, Christian, is put there for you to see what the life of a Christian is going to be like. It's to illustrate through allegory the life of a normal Christian. Now, unlike Pilgrim's Progress and unlike Lord of the Rings and, and so on, this really happened. But Paul isn't using this example straightforwardly, but to, to, to get you to go behind it. And he's doing it so that this truth, that you are justified by faith and not by works, really stick. He brings up this allegory at the end of two and a half chapters of teaching this in order to really get it in there, to make you pay even closer, to, to beautify it, Luther says. And so praise God for it. And here's the point. We aren't like Ishmael, children born into slavery. We aren't like Ishmael, the Jews before the time of Christ, bound under the law 
and only aware of their sin and the terror of it, enslaved to it. We're like children of the promise. It's unexpected, this grace of God that came to us. We're totally free. Inheritors of all of God's promises. Why? Just because God graciously gave it to you in love. That's the whole point of the allegory. He wants to assure Christians that they don't need to return to slavery under the law because you're free. You're just completely free from condemnation under the law. There, there is no law in regards to your acceptance with God. The law is nothing. Just like Isaac. It's just God's promise. That's it. But you will face temptation to live like Ishmael and not like Isaac because you think there's got to be something more I got to do. Others will convince you that there's something more you have to do. Some of you grew up in churches where that was the reality. There was man-made additions, superstitions. There was unspoken rules that you were looked down upon if you didn't meet them and you were thought to be a lesser Christian or not a Christian at all. You were condemned. Maybe you grew up in households like that. You were just nitpicked all the time. Never good enough. That's our world, isn't it? Look at America. There's signs everywhere. No smoking allowed here. We, we just live in a completely legalistic society. I mean, very permissive sexually, but and there's things that you'll be damned forever for. But we're not that. We're not that. God is a God of promise. Okay, so take Sarah. What is the only thing she could depend on to have a child? What was her only hope of having a child? What was it? Just what God said. Just His promise. That's it. What was the temptation she faced? To fix it herself! Surely God will be pleased with me if I take care of meeting His promise by myself. It's a mess. It's awful. All she had is God's promise. That's it. That was enough. She had to wait decades. And then God did it. That's the lesson here. That's it for the allegory. That's it. That's it. So the last line, verse 31. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Who? Who are children of the free woman and not the slave? Who? All who, like Abraham, have faith in God's promise. That's it. So you are accepted and forgiven of all of your sins by faith, through God's grace, only according to the promise of God. God said it, and that's it. That's the whole point of this all. But you think, how can God do that even though I've committed 
some really terrible, awful sin. How could God do that? You don't know what I've done. There's some some of you here that we do not know what you've done. And if we were to know, we wouldn't be surprised at all because we've heard it all. You know that? Your sin is not remarkable. Get over yourself. It just isn't. Are you so self-important that you think your sin is so big that nobody's ever done it before? Are you kidding me? I'll tell you what I've heard last week. You want me to tell you? No, I won't tell you. But I've heard it. Your sin is not special. It isn't. Can God forgive your sin? Are you kidding me? Abraham slept with his wife's slave, and he was the promised son. (laughs) Come on. Is God's grace sufficient for your sin? Yeah. For a whole world of pathetic sinners like you. That's all that God does. You say, I've done it too much. Come on. You think you're that good of a sinner that you can out God's grace? Really? Come on. David was a murderer, took his, one of his intimate, closest soldier's wife and then killed him. And your sin's impressive? The Son of God died according to God's promise to take away your sin. You see, the problem isn't that you think God can't forgive your sin. The problem is that you want control of God and what He gives you and when He gives it. That's your problem. You, you want God in your debt. You like to feel the loathing It's a comfort to you. But you can have freedom as a son of God. That all you have is His promise of His forgiveness of sins through His Son and that's it. And you're completely free. That's what's going on here. And so, it is only through the promise of God in His Word by believing in it In Christ, by His grace, that He forgives all of your divorce. That He forgives all of your lying, all of your stealing. Some of you steal stuff right now even. There's forgiveness for that. For all of your gluttony. For all of your breaking of the Sabbath and working on it. It's an awful sin. For all of your yelling at your kids, back-talking your parents, for all of your hooking up and making out all of it, by God's grace, through faith in His Son, it's forgiven. Not because you've worked so hard, not because you've figured out how to do it on your terms, but because of God's promise. And so we brothers are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Inheritors of all the promise of God. So what are we supposed to do with this good news? Well, he tells us in verse 27, Rejoice. I said it earlier in the service, and I mean it. 
the singing, particularly last week, was really loud and encouraging. It was fun. And so keep doing that. Now, this verse is a bit strange. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. It's strange in a few ways. I might get to this in a moment, but we don't think not having children is something to be sad about anymore. Like, we work really hard not to have children in our culture. Our worldliness is so turned the blessing of God. We think it's a blessing of God to not have children. We take medicine to not have children. Isn't that weird? And so this doesn't strike us like it should, unless you're a woman who can't have a child, of course. Then maybe you have some inkling of this. But he's telling the barren woman, which in that day is the biggest deal, because they loved God and knew his word that God gave woman the unique, crazy, wondrous gift of being able to carry and bear life. There's the most precious thing about being a woman. Today we call that a curse. Women are told and believe and hold it proudly that I'm not here just to have babies. And so I guess you have to flip this around in your mind. Rejoice, oh you one who has children. I don't know how you're going to do this. But barrenness was painful. She's supposed to rejoice. Why? Because by God's promise, unexpectedly, there'll be billions of children to the one who can't have children. Because through Abraham, Isaac came Christ. And Christ, like his father, is incredibly fruitful. This is the church he's talking about here. We're supposed to rejoice over the church. When it says in verse 26, the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother, it's talking about the church. We're supposed to rejoice in this. We're supposed to rejoice that this is all over the world and it's been going for hundreds and hundreds of years and it will go and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. That at the end, when God remakes all things new, there'll be billions of children that came from a barren woman. So we rejoice. We give God praise. We sing louder than we can stand. We are more hoarse after worship than after watching a Packer game. Because we just can't believe God would make promises to people like us and that we're inheritors of them. So we rejoice. We rejoice that being part of God's family, part of God's city, part of being a free son, though on earth it seems nothing. The world looks at us as nothing, as barren, as to be kept in the margins. But this is the most fruitful, glorious reality we could ever be a part of. Look at Sarah and Hagar. Sarah was old. Barren. Hagar was young. Right? Isn't that how we view the church sometimes? We're supposed to rejoice in Sarah. And so rejoice. Give God glory. Let your heart 
be free to honor Him, to praise Him, to thank Him. You can't be happy enough in this news. You can't express it expressively enough. Rejoice. But don't wallow in introspection. Rejoice. God has forgiven your sin. Rejoice that you get to be a part of this line of promise. But it isn't going to be easy. In verse 29, we're told that Ishmael, the son born according to the flesh, persecuted Isaac, the son born according to the promise. This is always going to be so in this age. Now, what is um, odd, maybe, is that these two boys were in the same family. That within the same family, often within the church, you'll have people who look down on and kind of quietly make fun of the godly. You have worldlings within the church who love sin more than Jesus and who love being attractive to the world more than rejoicing in the gospel, who make fun of and look down on the kids who are geeky Christians or something. This happened to Jesus, didn't it? Within the people of God, within Israel, they hated him because he loved God. They persecuted him. This is true of Christians. What's happening here in Galatia wasn't persecution from outside the church, but persecution from within the church because they were envious of the freedom that we have in Christ. The joy that we have in Christ. So don't be surprised at that. Young people, this is often particularly difficult for you. Because as you transition from childhood to adulthood, you want to differentiate from your parents and it takes on much greater importance acceptance of other people of your age. And you'll be tempted to want to be most acceptable to those people who seem most cool. That are just worldly. That just love things of the world. That just go after the flesh. You'll be tempted to follow those kids in youth group. They're aloof from the things that Pastor Jeff asked them to do. They're so cool that they don't answer the questions. They don't play the games. They just stand on the outside looking like this. And you want to be accepted by them. Because they're cool. So don't be surprised at this. Now don't become self-righteous. The, the solution isn't to become proud. We are to love our enemies. We're to pray for them. Have pity on them. Invite them in. Don't despise them as they despise you. Pray for them. But didn't Jesus tell us that the way would be narrow? That it would be difficult? That there would be a lot of pain for the children of the promise? So don't be surprised at that. One last thing I want to draw your attention to as I close. As I was reading and rereading this, and I was reading an article written by a agnostic feminist who wrote a book saying that the whole sexual liberation movement 
that feminism has propagated and embraced has she seeing as a feminist agnostic has utterly destroyed women which is crazy to me she writes better than most christians do today about this issue because christians are too ashamed to talk about it she's waking up to the horrors and what she said in the article was that she's realizing that it was christians who actually liberated women from being just sexual objects and in it, she tells a story. She, she was an archaeologist that they always knew when they were digging up a brothel, a house of prostitution from ancient Roman days. you know how? how? How would you know if you were an archaeologist that you were unearthing a brothel? Anybody? What would they find? Skeletons of dead babies. Piles of them. Particularly male. Why? Because the little girls could be raised up to be useful to the brothel. And she's realizing as an agnostic feminism that it was Christians who stopped those horrors. And she's admitting that as America turns from God and his word, we're returning back to that. (laughs) It's staggering. And Christians will not admit that. Do you know that? And yet, how has God brought his Savior into the world? What's the process by which the promise of God's salvation was brought to fruition? Just look at this text. What's the process? What was the promise? And how did God actually do it? How did he do it? Anybody have an answer? By marriage and childbearing. By the beauty of fruitfulness. So at the heart of this allegory, at the heart of this promise of God is the beauty and goodness of fruitfulness of bearing and raising children that's an application to this this isn't the main point of the text but doesn't it just give you a stark contrast to our gay and barren world that hates children Isn't our culture now, when they unearth it, going to uncover skeletons of children? You know, they won't, though, because we just burn them now. We're worse. And so as children of the free woman, we aren't to use our freedom to gratify our lusts. Women are not given to you as objects just to sexually desire and fawn over as children of the promise God gives us the goodness of marriage and the security of it the goodness of making a productive home and filling it with children and I wanted to bring that out because so many of you as women in your families even with people in the church look down on you for having children they think you're, but you got a college degree, you're wasting your life. What are you doing? You had so much promise. Now you're just having children and raising them? What's wrong with you? And I just want you to know that this is a really good work of faith that you're giving yourself to. Children are a blessing from the Lord. And as children of God, as citizens of the heavenly kingdom, we're freed from the darkness that surrounds us. 
We're freed from the enslavement to lust that results in the killing of unborn children. We're freed to give ourselves to this beautiful, glorious work of being fruitful and of taking care of those children that don't have the privilege of going up in a home with a mother and father who love them. We get to give ourselves to this work. That's how God brought his son into the world. I'm not saying this again to get you to have more kids, although I'm glad that we're having lots more children in our church. I keep hearing of more and more pregnancies, so praise God for that. But to show you how good it is to follow God, to be redeemed from the darkness and the bloodshed that's around us. Isn't it a privilege? But to go back to the main purpose of this text, the main purpose is to reassure you that through faith in Jesus, by the grace of God, according to His promise, you are children of the free woman, not of the slave. Right? Just think on the playground. Ishmael probably had a rough go of it. Isaac was the son of promise. We are. Don't be proud in it. Rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you have made this promise and kept it through your son. We thank you that you would bring us who have done nothing to deserve this, in fact, have done whatever we could do in our sin to distance ourselves from you, to shame you, to gratify our own wants and desires. And yet you've had mercy on us according to your promise. You've even given us the faith. So we give you praise, God. Thank you for this gift. Help us to have, by your Holy Spirit, assurance, reassurance that we belong to you by your promise. May it give us strength and comfort and help in a day that is becoming darker. May it help us to endure those who are jealous of the freedom we have as your children and so persecute us or look down on us. May it free us from the fear of man. But God, please help us to focus on your promise given us in Christ and not on our doings, not on our workings, not on our law keeping, but only on your grace. And so God, help us to look to Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.